0: Hi, Tom.
1: Hello, Heron. I got a different message this time. It said, "Join call." Mm. I've, I've never seen that before. Did you do something different, or
2: no? I mean, when when I loaded up Skype today, it crashed on me, so I'm not sure if that meant. anything. I think I probably need to upgrade my version of Skype. I've maintained that it as the same version for probably about six months now.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, I finally gave in. I hated their new. I, I still don't like the new one, but I finally just. The old one just didn't do it anymore for some reason, so.
2: So, I have a wide variety of topics in front of me. Do you have any topics you want to?
1: No, nah, and I got nothing going on here. I'm vegetable. very good. Let's see what happens. <laughs> very
2: good. well, as of the time of recording, the votes are slowly being counted in the Scottish independence vote. yeah, about less than ten percent of the vote has been counted, but so far, the nose seem to be ahead quite considerably, which I'm really a disappointed about. That surprises me, though. <laughs> well, the, what is it? The Orkney Islands, the Shetland Islands, and one tiny county is what's been counted so far. Yeah. So my view is, you know, if Glasgow and Edinburgh vote yes, then there's not much the rest of Scotland can do, but those votes aren't in yet.
1: Yeah. Why? Why are you disappointed?
2: Uh... My view is that um, in Australia, we weren't allowed a straight up and down vote on being continuing to be part of the Commonwealth. We were really? given the option of the way things were currently or politicians having more power. We weren't given the option for like a true republic. We weren't given the option for direct elections for the head of state. Really? So the ability for the Scots to have an up and down vote associated with whether they continue to be part of the UK... Yeah. I actually think it's, well. Well, at
1: if, least they got the vote. I mean, why the hell didn't you guys get a vote for that?
2: Because the nature of the political parties in Australia is that they're very unlikely to actually concede any form of power. Um, and what was created was they created a, um, some kind of constitutional caucus where they got together i don't know a group of people that hadn't been elected and another smaller group of people that had been elected to try and work out what could be
1: created and of the people that had been elected most of them were quite dubious <laughs> well why don't they i mean actually this opens the door for australia i mean it doesn't mean it's how the vote goes the fact that they have the vote is what's interesting and i would think Uh, this ought to encourage Australia to do likewise. Well, Australia has
2: gone about 15 years backwards since I was last there. The Conservatives, uh, well, actually there's no such thing as anything but Conservatives in Australia, but basically there was a far, not even right wing necessarily, just a kind of nationalistic, get all the foreigners out party that was on one sense (laughs) demonised, and then on the other sense the major parties just moved their kind of political persuasion in that direction but returning to scotland i mean i think if the yeah. if the vote could have been taken unmolested it would have been a better thing there's been so much fear and uncertainty created by banks and just oh, the yeah. ruling establishment yeah. in scotland associated with this vote and i think if it wasn't accompanied with substantial financial threats that the vote might be slightly yeah. different
1: yeah well but that's a reality that's there and th- you know i mean it's not about whether you like it or not <laughs> i mean it is about that but yeah i mean those are the considerations that are being weighed you know it's it's yeah it's fascinating it'll be interesting to see how it comes out
2: yes i mean i think <sighs> I would have liked to have seen a stronger yes through, and I think the stuff that was thrown in the no campaign towards the end of the, you know, polling, there was no independent media associated with this vote. It was very much, you know. Yeah.
1: So. You know, I, what I'm thinking here right now is why, wouldn't it be nice if instead of becoming an independent nation, Scotland could join a confederation of earthling states? Yeah. you know. Well, that wasn't an option. I mean, my <laughs> no. But I'm just thinking. Well, of course it's not. But I mean, why couldn't that be? Enough? Would it be illegal to to form uh, an Earth Federation mm. <laughs> that that uh, disavows any allegiance to nation states and and, <laughs> and pledges its allegiance to Earth? And it's a federation of groups who have done that. I- I mean, my perspective
2: is slightly different than your perspective on this. I look at the plurality of Earth as it is currently, and I think at least if you have a series of if truly independent states... I mean, it's funny actually. I was looking at populations through um, the past couple of days. The order is China, India, the U.S., and Indonesia. And And then I think it's Brazil,
1: largest population.
2: Yeah, for the largest population. So China,
1: India, and the U.S. Yes,
2: and then Indonesia. Now it used to be Indonesia then the US, but in the past fifteen years the US has beaten Indonesia in terms of population.
1: Oh, how wonderful. Yes. Which I think in large part <laughs> We beat those through. assholes.
2: <laughs> well when I was when I was a student and when I'm talking about, you know, when I was ten, eleven in Australia, we were taught very clearly that Indonesia was a superpower directly above us, as it was then, as it still is really. Yeah. And when you fly over Indonesia, particularly when you fly from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur, you get um, you, the military, the Indonesian military does ground exercises. They have more than a million troops that are kind of on active duty to show their power as you First fly right over country, them. yeah. yeah. God
1: damn right, boy. Yeah. Don't fuck with us. Yeah,
2: so Indonesia <laughs> is an interesting one because I don't think a majority of the world's population would know
1: Indonesia was at the fourth place. In well, terms in, of- in terms of population. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. What the- <sighs> See, I, the whole idea of nation-states just strike me as an anachronism now. It's just that time has passed. Well, what you would hope is that
2: the larger nation-states would fracture into smaller nation-states and that this yeah. fracturing would kind of continue on.
1: Well, not necessarily nation-states, though. That's what I'm saying. Is, is Why not fracture it? In, I mean, Colin, yeah, I guess it's just the idea of, of who is the ultimate sovereign. And it seems to me that the allegiance to Earth has to trump any national interest. Mm. The problem is that the perspective
2: associated with Earth currently is pretty universally divergent. The notion of Earth, which I guess you come
1: to... Well, that's the job we're faced with, yes, of course, is to change that attitude. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm confronted with uh, trying to find... Any form of journalistic outreach that will, you know, at least provide me some insight associated with what is going on currently in Iraq and Syria.
1: <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on. There are a bunch of different perceptions about what's going on. Which is the true perception? Well, I think the NGOs,
2: which is the perception that I'm looking for here, have always given the most accurate body count associated with what ah, is going yeah, on. Statistics. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: good to get good statistics yeah.
2: anyway yeah i mean this has always been my criticism associated with wikileaks is that the statistics that they provided were the u.s military statistics which were the worst or sorry the least accurate possible statistics particularly <laughs> associated <laughs> with civilian casualties yeah so surprise, yeah, surprise you, yeah you have these kind of interesting paradoxes through this yearning for statistics <sighs> but i'm interested currently because it appears to be a completely sterile set of bombing campaigns, which always strike me as a very curious thing. You know, I would much rather actually know what these bombing campaigns were achieving, and it, there seems to be absolutely no reporting of that here, unlike the past, you know, 15 yeah. years' worth of drone strikes uh, that have been kind of described in some level of detail. So, yes, I don't know
1: where one turns to for news media. Mm. See, I I think all this in a sense i think the details are almost irrelevant this is the i mean i this is what i expect from my model anyway is that uh, the caterpillar is falling apart the way of organizing our behaviors that's worked for you know several c- centuries at least you know uh, doesn't work anymore it's breaking down
2: yes but it's falling apart in ways where you would still want some degree or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want any degree of intelligibility through this. I
1: mean, maybe you well, we just think embrace we need the it. unintelligibility. Uh, yeah, I'm, well, again, it's if you want to study the caterpillar as it falls apart, that's not an unworthy study. But, yeah. but, but it's not necessary to go about the job of building the butterfly.
2: I mean, as September 11th has passed once again this year, <laughs> it occurs to me that my narrative and analysis is particularly associated with the Iraqi sanctions – are so far removed from any of this they hate our freedom narrative (laughs) that it almost makes me wonder about whether, you know, whether I need to start retiring some of these... Perspectives, because it doesn't seem to yield me any means of, you know, communication with a vast majority of the people that I find
1: myself. I think that's a good question to ask that we all need to ask ourselves regularly. (laughs) Yeah, but as I've reflected
2: through this, the kind of background narrative that's come through Stone Apes, probably dating back at least two years, is this notion of the language of violence. Which I think is a legitimate means of communication that should almost be studied linguistically in order to understand how we find where we are currently. But more importantly, how we
1: kind of decode the next, you know, yeah. 20 to, to 40 years. You know, I just read something. I don't, I, I might have posted it, but I don't remember now about um, some work done with language and describing political things to mm. people and, and using metaphors. And in one case, the crime is, uh, is described as a a kind of virus yes, you know that, that is infected our culture and blah 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 and the other and another group is is used given the analogy that uh that crime is uh oh, i don't know some wild animal or something yeah <laughs> you know i don't remember what it was and and anyway uh and then they were asked a whole bunch of political things and of course it's quite clear wh- how they came down <laughs> you know on uh on how to deal with crime and 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 criminals you know whether you should uh Punish them or try to help or figure out what's causing it in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, and yeah, and when, but most people, well, that's, most people seem to be just totally unaware of language itself. Yeah. You know, and and that just doesn't work. (laughs) You know, I don't think. Is it possible to, to have, uh, to be able to operate intelligently and and yet be unaware of the details of language well The interesting thing is,
2: how do you actually educate people associated with the details of language? Yeah, good question. And more importantly, I mean, I I consider the language of violence as being something that needs an explanation. I mean, akin to something that I could simulate in no blame. I mean, if you look at the kinds of violence that we routinely expose other countries to when we invade them to obviously make them better places. um, If you ran simulations where people were kind of randomly killed or when people were sleeping, they were randomly woken and some members of their family were killed and all these kind of things. You end up with the kind of language of violence that we have been speaking for the past decade and you get to see what actually happens in rich social simulations when these kind of things become normalized, almost expected behaviors.
1: So Then you wonder about
2: movies, too. Yes. What does that do? Well, yes, the whole culture of violence is very curious in that light because, yes, that is a, a means of kind of passively speaking the language of violence.
1: Yeah. Well, and getting off on it. Yes. <laughs> or know. at least
2: desensitizing the population sufficiently that they won't be concerned when they oh, see yeah. it go happening over yeah. in some of the yeah. country somewhere. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or maybe even down the street, you know? <laughs> yeah.
2: I've, I've been interested, actually, about filming, uh, which I guess to a certain extent, some of the... I can't think of the name of the movie now, where they have one day a year where they get to kill people. <laughs> the Purge. The Purge movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if, that, how the hell... Who voted for that? <laughs> well, this is where it gets very
2: curious. But the thing that strikes me is if you look at the the invading forces, the coalition of the willing kind of invasion style. I have a book actually that details the kinds of body armor that were used in the Iraq conflict, and the idea of these kind of alien creatures coming into your house late at night to extract various oh, yeah. family oh, members. Oh yeah!
0: Oh yeah! Yeah. <laughs>
2: Just astonishing, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, i thought about filming a, a or you know proposing a film in the u s based on this kind of thing because I think that would be an interesting kind of juxtaposition that if you have these kind of alien creatures come in and you know kill your mother or you know rape your sister or these kind of things. you are actually describing in you know American context um what the you know the the culture of violence is that is being exported yeah. It is very curious because the movies that have come out about invading forces, I'm not sure, the the film where the Koreans invade and the kids band together, which was originally, it was a film of, I can't think of the fellow's name, uh, but in the 1980s, and then they remade it recently last, oh this uh, decade, what, I Wolverine's. Don't know. I- What's the name? Of it? Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. About Red that. Heat or something like that. It's called uh, Red Dawn or uh, maybe Red Dawn. But um, no, these kind of movies are always very nationalistic. They don't actually uh, yeah. deal with the nature of, you know, your mother being killed and yeah. these kind of things. So, <sighs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Americans, yeah, yeah, live with their rose-colored glasses, don't they?
2: <laughs> most certainly, most certainly. Through the week, I heard an interview with Rupert Sheldrake. Um, conducted actually by Joe Rogan, of all people. And it was interesting hearing Sheldrake a kind of contemporary setting because obviously we've seen a few videos of his through various participants at Ape that have posted them to the Ape Facebook group yeah
1: but to hear him talk- oh, Joe Rogan yeah is a good guy to put him with yes
2: <laughs> to hear him interviewed now in particular his narrative associated with uh kind of genomics and the you know the the genome industries is really very interesting because obviously he is a has a strong counter-narrative to genetics, genetics, uberalis, in contrast to, you know, Dawkins et al. over the past how many years. But the thing that struck me through the conversation was how normative and sensible Sheldrake sounded. I mean, I think when he was in the trialogues, he kind of reveled in the fact that the stuff that he was saying was actually quite provocative. I mean, that's
1: 24 yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's not all that avant-garde anymore. Yes. <laughs> now, now and well, that's are, the same thing I'm dealing with, is that stuff that, you know, that pe- I couldn't even, people didn't understand what the fuck I was even talking about. Yes. You know, and now it's like, yeah, <laughs> what's next? Yes, exactly. <laughs> no. Very middle of the road. Well, that's great. It's awesome. Yes. That's huge
2: progress. But it does kind of beg the question what happens to science in a, a world where Sheldrake is normative
1: well, I, mean, I don't think do what doesn't change well there isn't any science there's only scientists <laughs> <laughs> there are only scientists yes. and, uh, and and the quality of the scientists is what will determine what science becomes
2: Yeah, there's this interesting phenomena associated with independent science that I've been a strong advocate of, primarily because I've never been a part of you know, capital S Science. Quite thankfully so, actually. I'm more interested in philosophical satire. But the notion (laughs) of...
1: uh, What a choice.
2: (laughs) Well, if science won't let me in, it's philosophical
1: satire all the way, in. Well, there must be some way to combine these two.
2: Well, one can kind of do that, but the the true science folk will never really let us in, Aaron. No, but it was interesting just because I got a sense of... I mean, Sheldrake must be in his 60s now, And just a sense of him, but kind of the necessarily the end of his career but at least the point in his career where he at least could say i told you so yeah and through some of this stuff particularly his he's like the
1: elder statesman (laughs) of the ages of science or 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 something like that yeah (laughs) yeah but the
2: notion of the excited dog coming with the owner coming home Mm -hmm. and the notion that actually that science really shouldn't be this thing of you know hedron colliders, it should actually explain homing pigeons and, you know, rat poisoning and a variety of things. Science is
1: a large building. There's lots of stuff that can be going on. I mean, science is just the Greek word for for knowledge, so Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, I don't know. It's a building that you need passes in order to move from one floor to another. Oh, you're currently, yeah, Yeah. but that's ridiculous. But that's because of all this old caterpillar structure that it's embedded in. But that's, that's disappearing. Not even slowly, quickly.
2: Yes, I've been pondering this notion of paper and writing and all these things that I guess I adhered to. I mean, even when we first started talking. And now it seems so completely alien. i got a printed <laughs> set of work with a view that I might edit it, and the only thing I could take from it was actually what I wanted to do was write most of it in source code. So at least it could be something that I could maintain and test and, and formulate on rather than something that just exists oh, yeah, in static yeah.
1: words. Paper is nice for museums and yeah. for artwork and for certain kinds. There's There are plenty of reasons for books and paper and ink and stuff, but... Uh, not to manage information. Do you think there are a
2: diminishing number of things for it, though? I mean, do you think the stuff that existed? I mean, I think in particular about academic writing, but also, you know, these kind of things. Can
1: well, business exist. cards. Mm. <laughs> you know, I like my business cards. Um, I, no, I would, I look around at the paper in my house and I wouldn't miss any of it. Mm. Except, except, I mean, I have, I still sort of attach to books, but, yeah. but, uh, really, uh you know uh, i don 't need i don 't really need any of it, even my own writing i 've got all that digitized now mm. so um i don't know yeah i 've changed o- over the last few years on that before i i mean i used to really i i was against the whole thing you know i mean I love books yes, i mean I used to have lots of books yes and um but now like I can say I can imagine. Well, like solari's uh, Arcology book mm-hmm. I, I'd love to have a copy of uh, the big One. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you know there is some case where physicality is just essential, and so certain kinds of art books and and all sorts of like i said there's still places for books, but that don't that doesn't have much to do like I say with just the idea of information or ideas it's got to have something more than that because if it's just information or ideas uh Elec- the electronic universe deals with that very well. Yes, and it's considerably more compressible in the electronic universe. Oh, it's just nothing about it that's inferior. I mean there there's no reason to have- to read a book in pa- I mean reading a paper fucking book is absurd.
2: Yes. Yes. Now I'm certainly feeling that in my in my room of bookshelves and uh, my plan of diminishing a bookshelf a year. Yeah,
1: maybe looking- put some uh,
2: railroads in there. <laughs> 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 well, that's a possibility as well. Although even that is uh, is quite a curious kind of thing to put in space. I actually quite like space. I've never had space yeah, in my oh, life. Yeah, oh, I love space, I, yeah. Now I have space in my life. Oh, it seems yeah. like
1: the space. Yeah. Yeah. I, as small as a place as I have, the thing is I have a lot of floor space. I can do yoga and exercise in here easily. Yes. And that's, uh, that's just crucial.
2: Yes. Yeah. It turns out when we have house guests, we will have two sets of house guests at the same time. Yeah. And I'm actually going to use my podcasting room as a overflow bedroom and put in a, a double bed, probably a blow up one or some kind of assemblable one. Yeah. But still there's enough space in here for people to rest quite comfortably. Uh, yeah. um, Um, So it's
1: great for uh, for a podcast room.
2: Yeah, no, it (laughs) works out. quite Well, I have my table kind of facing out to the middle of the room, and I think what I'll do, we have guests, is probably reduce the table maybe and take it apart because it it is collapsible. Um, But, yeah, it is a very nice room to to record podcasts in. But returning to the books, the thing that I'm... struck by through the books is the more time I spend with them in terms of holding them in my hand and just looking through them and these kind of things, the less attached I feel to them. <laughs> and this is kind of curious yeah. byproduct of having them in shelves kind yeah. of out of arm's reach. Oh uh, Yeah, it's just, this is something you see exactly. all the time, Yeah, Which, as opposed to yeah. dealing with them. Yeah. Which is very artificial and something that I'm not, because some of them, I, when I do handle them, I do actually mm. enjoy handling them. You know,
1: I'm reading Helen Keller's mm-hmm. uh, book, The World I Live In, mm-hmm. and, of course, her world is her hands. Yes. And it's fascinating. I mean, this is, speaks directly to this, you know what yeah. I mean? But that's all she has. She talks Well, it's fat, if you haven't read it, it's a fascinating book. Yes,
2: I think when I become a, an American, I will read Helen Keller. <laughs> I mean, she's so part of the American psyche that I. Think oh no, that, she's so un-American. She, well, she's she's fucking freak. That's exactly my point. But my point <laughs> is to read Helen Keller is like an American
1: pursuit that. Well, in, no, that's who cares about the The question is whether it's worth reading, yeah. not that not what motivates some. If so, someone's motivated for the wrong reason to do the right thing, well, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know i don 't care yes anyway no i 'm i'm, I'm just, i guess i'm just throwing it out there to anybody who might be listening that i 'm finding. Uh, this book by Helen Keller to be fascinating. I've had mixed emotions about her for years. Yes. And for a long time. I, uh, for a long time, I figured she was really uh, Ann Sullivan's puppet. Yeah, And that basically, I mean, that, uh, <laughs> there she was totally stupid, didn't know anything, but was well trained. <laughs> yes. You know, be- because the stuff I read is, it's just hard, so hard to imagine. You know, coming from that depleted, uh, you know, to have such a rich language, or her, her writing is really amazing. Mm. And and it's, I don't know, I just, uh, and I, I wonder again about her writing. You know, she didn't write any of it. She signed it in somebody's hand. Yes. Who then turned it into English. Yes. And I'm wondering how much of that is actually Helen Keller. Yes. And how much is the translator? I mean, that, uh, that's come up often when I'm reading Stanislaw Lim. He's a Polish writer. And mm-hmm. depending upon the translator, man, are there different, uh, Stanislaw Lims?
2: How many translators have you read? I
1: don't know. Two or three.
2: Right.
1: I'm thinking mo- mainly of Michael Candle. Yes. Uh, who, whose stuff is just stunning linguistically. Yes. Uh, the guy who who translated Solaris, uh, with, you know, I don't remember what his name was, but I mean, it's just so different. But of course, that's a different book too. You know, yes. so you know, anyway. Uh, but but that becomes an issue. Yes, so well, from Kästner
2: to Kant, you know, the the translation is the defining factor of these. Well, it, it, unless you actually want to go, you know, learn the German. But
1: um, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, tough issues. <laughs> yes. yes, certainly. Anyway, like I say, Helen Keller has been. In my vision for many years, you know, and I've never read her before, though, for some reason. I'm not because I sort of had the same aversion to it either. It's some American is like apple pie and Helen Keller, you know, and. Yeah. So uh, no,
2: not th- that it's a it's a part of kind of liberalist philosophy that embodies a series of byproducts, which may be a part of, um, as you say, her her teacher, but also represents a narrative which I associate very strongly with the Democratic Party. Which is completely opposed to the actual actions of the Democratic Party. So I think there's a lot of these kind of (laughs) these books which are you know taught to children in some way to politicize their outlook (laughs) so they can be utilized and thrown into you know the
1: existing war machine. So well, but again, the motive for presenting something is distinct from the merits of the thing itself you know well it depends on how it's it depends on how oh it's well of course in in every case yes the way that, that's always part of the the whole formula of course yeah yes. well that's why again children need to be taught from the beginning that very fact about language there is always context and you better be responsible for it
2: yes i've been reflecting on the interpretation of photographs recently mm Part of my grandfather's legacy was that he took a lot of slides. He took literally tens of thousands of slides, in fact. I once estimated that there were about 35,000
1: slides that he had taken. And he's got these as physical slides. Well,
2: they're now owned by... They're now kind of evenly distributed amongst the family, although through my efforts of about a decade ago, slowly memorialized in other family members, there has been a Project of digitization that has been undertaken in the past yeah, year. Cool. So, in the first bolus of these, which would have been probably about 500 slides digitized, arrived in PDF version uh, this week. Oh, which was exciting. quite interesting. So, from, oh, yeah. the, from the late 1940s, through to I guess the midnight uh the mid uh, 1980s and this is it where uh it spans uh Tasmania and Adelaide, South Australia primarily, although there are some photographs of kind of Sydney and Canberra as well. So it's, it's Australia. But it is a set of family photos with some incidental you know, scenes of you know, various landmarks and other things yeah, thrown yeah, in there as well. Yeah. The interesting thing with these photographs is most of my interpretation of them come actually from my grandfather's narrative. Of some of the slides I've seen mm-hmm. and And I know that they are used more as... In video, there's a notion of an iframe. An iframe is a a primary frame in the video of which the frames for the next kind of two seconds are derived from. It's like a solid image, and then there's a whole lot of kind of delta images that are constructed for the remaining frames from that first second through Mm -hmm. to two seconds. And these slides have a few of these you know definitional slides but they are always in the context of changes in people's perspective so for example my the the middle uncle on on my mother's family became a hippie when he was about 17, 16, 17 and started wearing very elaborate flowery clothing and he also got a um, <laughs> what are the lassie dogs called? They're collies. 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 Yeah. So he got a miniature collie that kind of stares <laughs> at him ideally through various points in these photographs. Quite quite a curious kind of <laughs> juxtaposition. And uh, you know these things occur in literally you know one slide him wearing formal school uniforms for the next slide in him wearing flowery garb with this collie looking, you know, deeply in love with him. And you have these kind of strange slides that were always brought out <laughs> in kind of historical narrative. Then you have a wide variety of other really quite curious slides that no one had ever seen previously and have been unearthed through this slide scanning. So the anticipation is that there are, will probably be at least 4,000 of these things surfaced. may have a book here. Surfaced. Well, my spiritual advisor went through with great detail her grandmother's and her grandmother's slides were probably only in the order of about a thousand. But she went through and scanned at least 200 of them, including, and this comes from one of your narratives as well, one of these parties, you know, 1950s kind of cultural parties. In fact, interestingly enough, my wife's Grandmother was involved with, uh, gas stations. They actually owned two gas stations, which means that they could have known your adopted parents because I think your adopted father was in the
1: like he, was, uh, oil. he sold, yeah, sold yeah. oil products yes. uh, to gas stations. Yeah.
2: So, yes, in, in, this, in this vignette I see, you know, how to pass, or at least my spiritual advisor in your past, meeting in some strange way. And one of these elaborate, but very, I mean, the funny thing about them is that uh, they look really fun. I mean, they were 1950s dinner parties with everyone kind of sitting around, uh, you know, joking. There seems to have been dancing at various stages. Ooh, there it's must have
1: been things. some alcohol there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, that answers that then.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting because if in in my family's case, I have the strong narrative associated with these various <laughs> events with occasional slides that don't fit any of the narratives. And yeah, I do reflect on this notion that eventually I mean, particularly now these slides are, are digitized in P, in, uh, in JPEG form.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, now they're, they they they'll continue to be here forever. Yeah. yeah. Or at least <laughs> yeah. for some long length of time. Well, for a while. Yeah. For, for yeah. the foreseeable future. <laughs>
2: But yes, it's interesting, this notion of, uh, you know, interpretive, because if, I mean, in the case of my. Well, am
1: am I incorrect? I think I've read or heard that, in fact, there are some tribal cultures that, that look at photographs and can't make any sense at all out of them. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, And that that sounds apocryphal. (laughs) But, but, uh, it's hard to imagine. Do you know for if, if, in fact that's true?
2: Well, I know that there are Papua New Guinean tribes that have very curious relationships to these kind of objects. But more importantly, that we as... I mean, I think if they were given Polaroid photos, that would be the ultimate test. I mean, showing them photos... Well, that's the question. It you know, seems to me I, I've,
1: some, I've read or heard or mm. somebody claim that uh, there are some tribes somewhere that when you show them a photograph of a person that they know... They, they they don't even know it's a person. They just see blobs of color.
2: Yes, I think if it were now, to be, I mean, my understanding is that there were Papua New Guinean tribes that were like that maybe yeah. sixty years ago. I don't know if they still yeah. exist, and I'm pretty clear from you know the Papua New Guinean documentaries that I see now that basically mineral extraction has taken over any yeah, possible yeah, anthropological yeah. Uh, yeah you know yeah. epicenter yeah. associated with these kind of tribes.
1: Yeah, it's just, I mean it's it doesn't sound necessarily unreasonable reasonable that 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 would be possible but i mean i've never seen any documentation on that
2: well i mean there are plenty of optical illusions which push i mean i frequently look at images and if i'm not in the right frame of mind or if it's late at night or these kind of things i find it very difficult to interpret some images so i mean i feel that yeah i just don't know if i mean i'm sure that could be extended to all images relatively easily yeah yeah
1: if for us, when we look at a photo, when you talk about interpreting photos, again, we come with all of our own history That's with exactly us to the, point, I- yeah, yes, the idea. Yeah. And so we all know exactly what to do- make of all of it. You
2: know? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me when we were traveling through Bakersfield was that the antique shops sold photographs of just family groups and, you know, <laughs> Two yeah. boys sitting down with a dog yeah. and things like yeah. that, which, yeah. I mean, obviously people purchased, but I can't think of anything more bizarre than having yeah, just that's, random that's pretty strange. Photographs. Or from the
1: 50s. Well, because it's from the 50s. Well,
2: some yeah, of these photographs something. were well earlier than the
1: 50s. Yeah, or whatever. So yeah, so yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got a ton of photographs here. Well, there is something kind of... Tr- I've got a whole box full of photographs th- from my parents. Yes. Go back to the 1920s. Yes. And I don't, I haven't looked at them in years, but I mean, I have and they're fascinating. I mean, just even boring one. I mean, just stupid shit, but somehow it's like watching an old Laurel and Hardy movie and Mm. looking at the furniture and the, and the kitchens. Mm. And, (laughs) you know, it was such an interesting, weird world in the 1920s and 30s, man.
2: I rarely speak to my father. I speak to him about every six to eight months. And I spoke to him a few months ago and recounted to him some of the family members that I had discovered on Ancestry.com. In particular, two brothers, one called Lawrence and one called something else. Anyway, um, I recounted that they had been to the US and come back. And my father immediately kind of started to this long description that he hadn't recited for, you know, 50, 60 years associated with who these people were. They were his uncles on his mother's side, uh, one of whom had a very beautiful wife who he'd married in the US and funnily enough brought back. Uh, To Leeds in the UK Uh, and he described that they had become street vendors, but they'd become street vendors where previously they'd been part of some import-export business, again connected with the US. But just by finding these names on Ancestry.com and presenting them to my father, he immediately started talking, and because I knew their parents through Ancestry.com I could interject information associated with parents, and you know, they had a sister who was very well-to-do, who'd married a doctor, and all this kind of information I knew through their this online resource, but my father had no primary connection with that, but was able to fill in the blanks quite uh, yeah. in quite animated fashion, which I really found very strange because I don't normally have those kind of conversations with my father. But just again yeah. through this, you know, these little elements, I was able to uh, to start a kind of reminiscing session from that. So two other interesting interviews that I've heard, aside from the Sheldrake one, were both interviews with kind of rappers of the 1980s and
1: 1990s. I'm not sure what you, Do you follow rap music at all? Hip-hop at all? Uh, no. I, I don't follow any music, really, anymore. So, I mean, I'm a, I there are a couple... I mean, I, I sort of like some of the stuff I've heard from Eminem, mm-hmm. and um, Tupac did some kind of mm-hmm. neat things, but I just, I just don't give a shit. I don't even think of that as music, anyway. It's poetry. It's Theater, it's yeah. a, it's a whole bunch of shit. It ain't music, but yes. that that doesn't mean it's not a worthy art form. Yeah, when I when I looked at the YMCA in
2: Leicester in the UK, and I was there for about three and a half months, my neighbour liked playing Tupac loudly at about two thirty in the morning. <laughs> that wouldn't. So be any I fun. have a really violent aversion to Tupac. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, mainly because my recollection is just being woken up. I mean, this is yeah, this well, is I'll classic. Go- FBI-style torture technique. Yeah, here, right, you know? absolutely,
1: yeah. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't put, I would kill somebody. See, that's, yeah. that would not go on.
2: Well, I bought him some headphones, and he took the headphones and said, oh, yeah, other people have given me headphones, and he had a pile of headphones.
1: <laughs> he kind
2: of threw <laughs> the headphones <laughs> I got I, him in I the pile. I would have killed
1: him, and I'd be in jail now. Yeah, oh, you'd so, be out
2: by now, Harry. Oh,
1: yeah, you're right, I probably would. Yeah. It might have been let off as just justifiable homicide. Yeah. So Chuck D is part of a group called Public Enemy, and Public
2: Enemy's big shtick was that they were kind of militant, um, you know, not necessarily the kind of return to Africa militancy, but the let's analyze U.S. culture with a very strong view <laughs> uh, associated with... And they're with, still
1: alive? Yeah, no, I guess in his
2: <laughs> mid-50s now. And he's actually quite an interesting fellow. I heard an interview with him, like I said, earlier this year, which filled together a number of gaps. Through my late teens, I saw an interview with him where he talked about traveling to countries and collecting like like, ornate mugs while he was on tour and I just thought he'd gone senile in that interview. <laughs> and he also has interviews out of when at the start of the Obama presidency where he was very in favour of Obama and I thought, oh, his wife is also a um, an academic at UC Santa Barbara. I think she teaches African American history or something like that. Um, so, yeah, he has become quite a bourgeois yeah. character in terms of his original militancy but, you know, you have to take I mean, as with Sheldrake, you've got to give these people a bit of time and a bit of respect because I mean the main the main element with Chuck D is that he worked with half a dozen musician producers called the Bomb Squad through the late eighties and early nineties, and their big shtick was taking about fifty different samples usually from old funk and disco records, and creating this kind of wall of sound almost Phil Spector-esque, only even more kind of unintelligible to the general ear. So Public Enemy, as you listen to it, particularly the early albums, are really very violent and jarring. It's quite a curious kind of collection of sounds, and I used to find when I was and I started listening to them in my early teens that it would take three or four listens to before you could actually acknowledge the musical forms that were contained in each of these uh, albums. But they do survive the test of time. I mean, the later stuff was more curious. Their uh, their DJ was, I think, hit by a motorcycle and went on to raise ostriches. So they kind of inherited a new fellow who came in who's considerably more mainstream and does like Nirvana mixes and things in between sets. But um, no, it was interesting. And the other uh, musician or rapper that I listened to an interview of was with Ice-T, who again is very curious
1: because he... He's the actor, right? Yes, he's he's now the actor, yes, yes.
2: As many of these rappers of of early, late 80s, early 90s, they went on to quite successful acting careers. And in the case of Ice-T, he basically had done a series of armed robberies initially. And I actually think these are legitimate (laughs) sales. A lot of these rappers, um, what's the fellow's name, Jay-Z and these kind of things, they all have a, you know, a streets history, which you should really take with a grain of salt. But the case of, uh, of Ice T, there were gaps in his, um, you know, he went from the army, there was a period of time about three or four years before he put out his first album, and he was incredibly wealthy by the time he put out his first album, which he actually attributes to armed robbery. And because, <laughs> because he was an orphan and a variety of other concerns, it really seems unlikely that he made the money through legitimate means. I mean, it seems yeah. almost legitimate that armed robbery could have been his game, particularly in the mid. To late eighties in LA. Yeah.
1: Well, he's saying it is, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, so, of course, yeah, but that's just could be street is, credibility, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, but to, to hear, yeah, him maybe interview- he probably inherited it. <laughs> yeah. Well, to hear him interviewed <laughs> is very
2: interesting because you realise he is distinctly—he was signed to Warner, uh, to Time Warner almost instantly. So he went into a uh, where, uh, I mean, the other groups that War- Time Warner had signed where it's so... I mean, he was basically the only rapper on Time Warner. But through that, he was able to get a whole lot of, like, the rights to Black Sabbath, for example, and a variety of quite seminal kind of rock music, which really heavily affected his sound in the first... Five albums, at least, before he released Cop Killer and was kicked off Time Warner. <laughs> um, but no, it was fascinating to hear him interviewed, because you know, he now actually records a podcast. He's been recording a podcast for the past, um, maybe, I don't know, six months or so, mm-hmm. uh, which I've listened to, uh, and it's actually quite interesting. I mean, it's very much associated with his life and, as you say, his current acting career it's got a lot of very middle of the road reviews of games and what have you, but fall through this kind of iced tea persona, which I think really is just a creation of uh, you know justifying now working on I guess. Well, Law everybody's got and, a
1: persona. Yes. I mean that's nothing new, well, it, actually, especially if you're a famous person, then you've got yes. a highly cultivated persona. Well, also, the
2: nature of the podcast as a as a form means that if you don't have a podcasting persona. I think it's very rare to actually find people who record podcasts who are. I mean, it's impossible. The audio format and the need to kind of create reproducible audio style creates a lot of different things which aren't, you know, aren't necessarily intrinsic. I mean, just for coherency alone, I think people need to kind of, you know, flatten certain things and, you know, make other things more pronounced.
1: Yeah, but do we do that? Um,
2: Well, as my spiritual advisor frequently points out, when people meet me in Squish, I'm considerably more withdrawn. I actually like to listen to people and, you know, I don't feel the need to kind of carry on gap-filling conversation or do a wide variety Mm -hmm. of the things that I feel obligated to do. And as has been noted by listeners to both Stone Ape and Model Rail Radio, I exist as two very different forms.
1: I too am the same. When I'm in Squish, I uh, am very quiet. I observe, I do what I need to do, and I get the hell out of there.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, for personal safety alone, it's oftentimes the best way to do it. Well, it's just keep a low profile, man. Just
1: in and out, get your job done, and, uh, (laughs) and don't rile the language monkeys. And Skippy. I've been reflecting through the week
2: associated with the podcast form, I don't know I mean, basically, you, you may not be aware of this, Heron, but from about 2006 through to about at least 2010 2011, I had a, a weekly podcast that I put out associated with Biota and Artificial Life and these kind of things
1: Well, that was where we met, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. And I was
2: reflecting, I guess on Sunday when you post the interview with the fellow from the Uh, Max Planck Institute and also Mm. um, our mutual friend Nicola how one gets this information to a broader audience I've reflected on this quite a bit when I was producing Biota but I just came to the conclusion in large part through spending some solid time with academics that the the progress that I thought I had made through doing Biota recordings had actually not really Existed in any meaningful form for, you know, a majority of the people potentially picking up. No, that. N- yeah, right. Yeah. There
1: a few people, pr- there are a few people. <laughs> Again, that's what you gotta concentrate on. It's mm. a small number, mm. uh, but that's what we got. Well, it's interesting because I think
2: if you concentrate on the few and you service the few, you probably lose an element where almost you get stuck in yeah. a kind of recursive well, you vortex. Well, bo- there's that, no reason
1: yeah. you can't do both. Well, that's where but it gets really very gets, interesting. You know, you can do a, a shotgun approach to just mm. blast shit out there. Mm-hmm. That, or you can focus it. In fact, I, my intention is to do both, yes. Mm.
2: Yeah, I've had some correspondence with Nicola, and I couldn't recall when it was. I think it might have been... You're talking about the guy
1: who was the end reviewer. Yeah, the interviewer. Yeah, okay.
2: Because I think I had both encountered him through my last appearance on the Sea Realm, or at least my last appearance talking about Noble Ape on the Sea Realm, But also through either his interview with Natasha Vita Moore or his interview with Steve Omahontro, Because I was going back through his catalogue trying to work out where we had actually corresponded and over what. We did have a maybe three email chain where he initially was very positive about talking with me in his Singularity podcast. But yeah. I think the correspondence just dropped off for one reason or another. I probably forgot to respond to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it's you probably go. solely my fault. I, yeah. I don't want to disparage the, the fellow. Well, if you're
1: not going to push it, you know, then... Yeah, th- I think I've th- always been a little bit concerned yeah.
2: associated with the video podcast. I mean, I've had the benefit when I have been
1: interviewed yeah. on
2: big podcasts. It's always been before they've moved yeah. to that video format.
1: Yeah. and I, t- yeah, I don't know how I feel about that either. I, mm-hmm. You know... Although I didn't mind that – I liked, actually, that talk I gave at Fullerton. I thought Mm -hmm. the video was – better than i mean i think the video made it better than if it was just an audio
2: yeah well i think the video kind of embodied an element particularly associated with your both facial and body movements yeah. which would have been a and lot there's
1: still a lot color. of a spontaneity in yeah. it because i didn't really know what the fuck i was gonna say next at any moment yeah. just like i do when i'm here yeah, yeah. so that's what the, the part that bothers me about because i know i'm gonna have to start doing uh, youtube videos yes and um The problem is – that's why also I guess I I, what I want to do is start doing some more public speaking and recording them and and using snippets from that. Because the idea of writing something and performing it in front of a camera in my room strikes me as just deadening.
2: Yes. I mean, my experience associated with doing Conscious in the Cloud, all of which was video, but none of which video I put out, related to particularly at points of questioning or kind of movement between speakers, my facial expressions were... Too, um, not necessarily even derogatory, but maybe just too inquisitory for, and my concern, I guess, being interviewed in the, in Nicholas format is that it would be impossible for me not. To have particular facial reactions that would just be like distilled in time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I,
2: the other thing that I, and I reflected very heavily on the, the discussion that you posted <laughs> is that, um, when I've interviewed non-English speakers, the ability of just having audio alone has enabled me to savagely cut the audio to make it considerably more intelligible. Uh-huh. When I used to do biota recordings, there were a couple of interviews with people that had speech ticks that went A, B, C, B, C, D, C, D, B, A, B, C, D, E. A, B, C, and then they would go in this pattern where if I cut them into thirds and then cut them again and then reorganize the thirds, it made perfect sense. But (laughs) as it was spoken, it was almost unintelligible. Uh. And the thing that I get frustrated about with Nicholas' interviewing style is that there are elements of that in what he does, where I think it would almost be beneficial if he recorded just audio, that he could then go back and make make the form flow just slightly... Yeah, better.
1: I mean, I took this. I didn't take that links. to be a problem. Yeah. really, with that particular interview. In fact, I love. There were a lot of silences in there. Yeah. Uh, and i thought i loved that you know because yeah. he was trying to figure out how the fuck he's gonna say it in english yeah <laughs> okay.
2: yeah i guess yeah i guess i've always been very sympathetic to people where english is not their primary language in particular because they're usually very reticent for want of a better term in in order to appear in these formats and yeah the ability to give a uh, a high quality edit that distinctly improves their speaking form is something yeah. that I think people are very receptive to. In fact, it really kind of welcomes recurring participants because they know that their audio is going to be edited in a form where they won't necessarily feel guilty about, you know, participating in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting, I think also his selection of guests. I find, you know, I mean, I've like I said, I've had uh, interactions with two of his participants, one of whom was almost unintelligible when they appeared on Biota, and I had to actually spend an extensive. In fact, there was a section of about half an hour where I had to <laughs> re-explain, you know, what I was yeah. doing in very basic terms, which I cut from the audio. But uh, yeah, I just, I think he's he's. <laughs> It's not that he's picking people that are uh, popularist or easy. It's that he's finding people who will not rock the boat. And I think that might be part of his choice associated with how he wants to interview people. But yeah, I mean, it is a very interesting...
1: See, I don't know anything at all about him. That's the only... Interviewer. That's all, it's all I know about him is that. Oh, you've one got
2: the, I interview. thought you knew
1: him. No, I have no idea. Oh, who he okay. Is. No, no, That's no. I just I stumbled onto that thing oh. and I thought, this is very good. I assumed you were old friends because the way he approached me
2: seemed to indicate that he'd certainly listened to Stone Apes, but, but also that he was very aware really? of
1: your work. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, hmm? maybe he is aware of it, but I'm not aware of the fact that he's aware.
2: <laughs> yeah, of it. no, it's very curious. I mean, I could be completely misinterpreting this from our you know three bits of correspondence in fact i couldn't even remember how we had corresponded i couldn't remember if we corresponded via youtube or google plus or emails
1: or yeah. facebook I at first i didn't yeah. even like him i mean just yeah. looking at him and listening to his voice i thought what a prick <laughs> you know just my immediate response was yeah. that yeah. well but, i think yeah that's part of i mean i I'm, If I had any criticism
2: of his style, it would be that although he has improved over the past 30 or so interviews that he's taken, with a particular kind of critical ear. And, you know, look, if you want to go back and listen to the first two or three Biota recordings or even your and my first couple of discussions, you know, I mean, but all of this has come through the kind of listening refinement over time where this format has improved, one would hope. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, he... um. Well, anyway, I I got over that, and uh, well, the fact that, again that both of them speak English as a second language, but you know, that's I mean, obviously they've both spoken it well for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. And yet, I'm still impressed by that because I know just how difficult it is. But you must have spent time with impeccable
2: English speakers where English is their second language, and they speak it just
1: amazingly. Yeah. So, well, yeah. But usually, those ones—it's uh, not really a second language. They have they learned it young, and uh. they, they they were it was their second language. <laughs> but uh, at least that's been my experience. So. so. A Chinese, when, when after especially my parents, Chinese, especially yes. Asians. Well, a lot of this, Europeans speak English quite well, but well, uh, Asians have serious problems. Well, this is interesting. So after my parents were divorced, my mother rented out a portion of the
2: house to boarders, and one of these boarders was a professor who, who was a, an Australian <laughs> language specialist from mainland China. I think from Shanghai, if I remember correctly. This man. You could spend an hour just hearing about the minor, you know, incidents in his day. And you would sit there just with the (laughs) precision of his English. Ah, cool. Well, that's rare. That's extremely rare. That's a
1: wonderful thing (laughs) to see, though. No, no, without question. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. When did he, how old was he? uh,
2: He would have probably been in his 50s. He had his wife who was... When did he he learn, when
1: did he first learn English? At what age? Um... In his early twenties, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. But well, obviously, was, he either has a real knack for it or mm. a real love for it. Well, or, least, both. In, or both. Yeah. 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 Probably. Yeah. Probably both.
2: Yeah. yeah. The thing that capt- captivated me about him was that he was someone who. People would. Everyone had this reaction. It wasn't just unique to me and my particular mm-hmm. proclivities. You know, my brother's friends, uh, who were you know probably seven at the time, <laughs> would come in and sit cross-legged and listen, just and listen, listen to this yeah. man speak. Yeah,
1: because sort of like Terrence McKenna. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Except this fellow was not talking about mushrooms. He was no, he, talking
2: about you know yeah. fixing a sandwich. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. it was really one of the most curious things that the most banal of of events yeah. could yeah. be because you realized. I mean, I realized through that how I was abusing the language. I always felt mm. ashamed to be a native English speaker <laughs> in his presence.
1: You know. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well I I actually I know a lot of Europeans who speak better English than people I work with. Mm. You know, people I work with are fucking illiterate. Mm. And I work at a newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> well i mean english is utilitarian for most
2: of us it just gets us by we do what we need to with it we make all kinds of mistakes and we don't even think about the breadth of the words that we use oh we don't think about it if if you consider the possibilities at any possible juncture of using a wide variety of different words (laughs) well you become paralyzed immediately well this is interesting (laughs) because what what I found with this professor was that it was almost a kind of trapeze artist. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get yourself out ideas. there and figure out exactly. how to get out of the
1: situation. Exactly. Ah, cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. But yeah, is uh, he still around? I don't know, but I need to look him up. Yeah, I, really. he Sounds like someone. I'd like to hear some of his I'm stories. Sure gonna, a, we need uh, to invite him on here and have him tell us yes, some stories.
2: Yes, I'm sure he's on YouTube because I'm sure he could. He had to have been. Captured in some well, video, posted in form. the Stone Age podcast. Definitely, yeah, definitely,
1: yeah, yeah. Some people, you know, like I say, I just love listen. Well, Alan Watts is the same mm-hmm. way. I just yeah. like listening to him talk. Yes, and I, you know, and the same with Terence McKenna. I don't care what the fuck he talks about. It's just the way he uses language just astounds me. <laughs> so one of the things that I did at some
2: stage, probably just before I got sick from this virus, I think was, uh, I was, I found one of my, my first recorded compositions, my first recorded digital compositions that I recorded in 1997 which was a series of kind of piano exercises made into a longer form. It just represented one of my warm-up piano exercises, basically. I guess I was setting up a digital recorder and recorded
1: it. And I haven't attended... Point out, when you say a piano, you mean a, a finger exercise for yourself.
2: So, yes, it's about... Yeah. I think it's about seven minutes. It's probably five separate exercises that are kind of yeah. linked together into a... Let's, of-
1: let's <laughs> use the proper... term. These are etudes.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it almost, yeah, yeah, accurately, yes. So, having heard it, I thought to myself, well, can I still play this?
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, it probably will come right back to you. Yeah, actually. no, it did, yeah. actually. Yeah. That was the thing that surprised yeah. me, was yeah. that I haven't played... Muscle know, memory is amazing. Well, it's not
2: just muscle. It's it's funny, actually, that you call it muscle memory, because I think the greatest muscle that was exercised was my mind through the process. Really? Yes. It wasn't about the fingers at all. It was about recognising, you know, thirds, fifths. Yeah, you know, when flats needed to be inserted. Well, for something
1: you wrote, yeah, maybe no. that's, for me, the pieces I've learned on the piano are really in my hands. Mm. In fact, my mind just fucks it up. Mm. You know, if, if, uh, in fact, if I play them slow, I can't play them. Yeah. But if I play them fast, my, you know, and there's no time for me to think about what the fuck I'm doing, my fingers know where to go. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of what I play, very little of it is from composition. I, well, sorry, very little of it is from, you know, standard written music. Yeah, Almost right. All of no, it comes composition. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's so you have a whole different like yeah. you know, because I'm talking about playing Bach or something.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had, I had probably four years worth of standard piano where I learnt bits and pieces, but I didn't, as a performance pianist, would learn, you know, yeah. learn standards and all this kind of stuff. I was just interested in getting my decks and speed yeah, to a point right. where i can yeah. actually you know play do what you want yeah exactly. right yeah uh, which isn't which is you know, very different than people that have just learned traditional music i mean most of the music that i played in those kind of settings i would do on a piano accordion for people at parties i would take you know i would take requests and then do performances associated with what people have requested which was typically pop music and you know rolling stones and this kind of stuff and um, so yeah it is a different instrument for me of the piano, which is why I wanted to go back to this actual recording. It's something where obviously at one stage I'd been able to play it quite competently. It wasn't particularly <laughs> difficult, but within 10 minutes I was playing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I haven't played my keyboard in probably, I don't know, a long time, more than a year, maybe two years. Uh, but the last time and it was about the same before that, but actually within a couple of hours, I was able to, to get back, you know, just one piece that I was trying to get, you know, a couple hours and, and I pretty much had it back again. I was yeah. amazed, you know,
2: yes. Yeah. I mean, for me, it would be probably in the order of three or four years we had the piano or it's an emu keyboard but we had it packed up when we lived in the last apartment in fact moving out here and when it arrived it was slightly broken so i had to repair various elements to it but i certainly didn't play it at that stage so yes for me it would have been maybe three four years before yeah. the last play yeah and it was actually quite striking because i recall i mean i haven't drunk alcohol in 15 years but I recall that one of the things that I liked actually doing was drinking and playing the piano because it really, it, you know, it just created a different yeah, mind, wonderful, wonderful
1: to, place to be. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do reflect on that associated with, you know, any future, you know, use of psychedelics or, you know, heavy cannabinoids or a variety of things that really it's the creative part of my mind that I have not necessarily limited access to in my day to day, but just, you know, a lot more of my day to day is associated with utilitarian mental exercises. Um, but yeah, it is something that I reflect upon. How have you, have you progressed with your DMT experimentation since we last talked?
1: No. No? Um, I may this weekend. I, I'm not in any hurry. I've got enough for five hits. Mm. So, you know, we'll see. I, I may tomorrow, you know, I may, to, I may this weekend sometime. Interesting. Interesting. I'm, I'm, inter- I, I'm about out of options. Actually, I mean, I've got one. I've got an idea for how how to do it this time. That's different from what I've been doing. It mm. should be more effective, I think. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and if this doesn't work, then I'm going to have to change the method entirely. And I'll still have four hits left. So, I mean, I, I've got some time to figure this out. So. Mm-hmm.
2: In terms of the... I mean, I, I don't really... You kind of gave the initial indication that you were giving feedback or at least getting feedback associated with others' experiences with this particular batch. I mean, is the general consensus that there's just mind-blowing
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and- the, the guy's only done from the the one before the batch we had before <laughs> and his friends and he did it <laughs> he didn't get off particularly on uh-huh. it but, but but his friends did well, that seems to indicate that there's probably something wrong with the batch. There, well, I it, I don't know what it indicates, um, but no, but I mean, this is a different batch, and I haven't had any feedback on was it on on anything <laughs> mm. uh, except that it, that it looks like the stuff I had last, time, and it certainly smells like it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm assuming this is uh, well, I just don't know what. I like I say I, I, this weekend, probably, or whenever I'll I'll be doing it, mm. and uh, then we'll see. Mm. Do you get the sense that it could be cut with anything? No, because no, – no, I don't think so at all. That was the, – the, I was going to say, one time when I took some LSD, I think it was cut with some speed or something. hmm that I definitely noticed. But, uh, no, this is, like I say, it, it's the same every time. Mm. You know, I get about 30 seconds of Greek key hallucination, or not even really hallucination. It's just close your eyes and you can see these patterns. and And the sound is all weird. I can hear myself breathing like it's inside some, some sort of echo chamber or something. Mm-hmm. So it it all feels very interior and these uh, Greek key kind of geometric shapes are going. And that that starts after about 10 seconds mm-hmm. and ends about 30 seconds later. Right. And that's it. Yeah. And then there's some sort of strangeness that's going on for maybe a minute or two after that uh, that I can't really – talk about you know it's just sort of
2: you, know, you just feel out of sorts
1: yeah. well it's just it's sort of weird <laughs> you know i don't know what the fuck it's going on but it's certainly nothing very dramatic yeah. you know yeah so so this time the thing is before i never i've never during that time i never took a, a hit i waited for like a couple minutes mm. before i took a second hit and i think what i This time, I'm going to take the first hit, and even if I'm still doing the the Greek key hallucinations, I'm going to take another hit immediately. Right. Big, big time. Right. And uh, I think maybe – I mean, from what I've been reading, that may very well account for it, you know? Okay. So we'll see. Hmm. So that's what I'm going to do different this time. I'm going to take the two hits back-to-back almost immediately. And you're
2: using the same kind of filled chamber of smoke as opposed to yeah, the it's direct a, pipe.
1: Right, yeah. It's a, a, a liter or two-liter bottle of whatever, mm-hmm. or something or other, and it just fills up. It, it almost looks like it's full of milk.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it just fills up with this uh, this white, milky, like I say, it almost looks like it's got a liquid in it. It's yeah. so does. So, you know, we'll see.
2: <laughs> certainly, certainly.
1: Yeah, I don't know what to expect. I mean, if it, if it, if it does happen, well, then that should be quite interesting, mm. you know. Like I've never been introduced to an alien intelligence before. Yeah, so, well, so that might well, yeah, yeah,
0: intelligence.
1: Yeah, or much of any kind, you're right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, that should be fa- – and if it doesn't work, well, then, like, like I said, there's still other things to try, you know, mm. like a different – like a pipe or something or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or whatever. I don't know.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Well, tomorrow
2: I will be at some stage receiving one of these new iPhones.
1: Oh, you going to actually get it tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You- yeah, no,
2: I, I ordered the 6 as opposed
1: to the 6 Plus, but I suppose ah, okay, I ordered problem. the 6 Plus. Yeah, and and hers you, is coming yeah, mid October sometime. <laughs> mid October. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking. I was disappointed to find that I'm not eligible for an upgrade, though, for another year so. Oh, you're joking. Oh, no, you got, I've S. got the 5S. Yeah, yeah I got the current one. Yes. Yeah. Which is awfully nice. I don't feel that bad, but I was, I was, uh, I'm seriously considering the plus
2: yeah the plus apparently is very nice. I mean, my only concern with it was it was just slightly too large for something that I want to carry yeah that's in my the pocket. thing
1: is I need to go down and handle one and yeah. stick it in my pocket and yeah. see what it feels like. You know, yeah, I don't know that 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 concerns me, but I mean, I know that the four S is basically useless mm. for anything other than a phone. Totally. You know, and, and in an emergency, it's nice to have all the other shit if yeah. you're stuck somewhere on the road or you. You're lost and you need the map. It works, but it's it's. But th- on the other hand, I use my iPad all the time, so yeah. uh, I, I'm trying to. I, I just don't know. I think I'm most attracted to that 400 DPI uh, screen on the on the six F, of six plus. Yeah, that does that, look very interesting. Yeah, I, I really want to see that. I think that I think that's g- actually getting close to uh, the kind of technology that that we actually need. 400 DPI is pretty goddamn good. Yeah, the interesting
2: thing is that the battery life versus size has finally gotten to the point where the larger size is actually considerably better in terms For of... For the battery. battery, yeah. So the screen yeah. is obviously now sufficiently energy rated that the battery size increase is a substantial improvement, because that was always... That's than it used to be. Yeah, that was always I mean, the I've way I've never to...
1: had a problem, because I don't use my phone much at all. Yeah. I usually, I don't charge it, but like twice a week. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently if you use it all day long, uh, is there some problem with an iPhone? Yeah,
2: mine is, is in that limit. But I mean, I use it for podcasts. I use it for everything, basically. My phone is an extension of, of me in a lot of ways. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, see, my phone has never become... It, it, like I say, it's just a sort of emergency device mm-hmm. that I have. You know? mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah. I'm genuinely interested in the watch as well. I've never had a watch through my adult life. I've not really
1: yeah. liked yeah, well, I would No, I took watches off specifically. I didn't want mm-hmm. that thing on my wrist. It was a Bob Dylan song. Ha <laughs> ha about yes. the stamp of the culture. Yeah. You take your watch off, and you got this circular indentation in your arm. Yeah. That, that identifies you as one of them. Yes. And, and when I heard that, I took my watch off, and I never wore <laughs> one again.
2: Yeah. No, the biometric data is the thing that interests me. It may annoy yeah. me. I mean, I'm ready to yeah. be annoyed. Unfortunately, for the price tag, it, you know, I probably will be annoyed.
1: No, it's not but that much. It's, no, no, it's
2: not. I mean, for the, for the intro. The if,
1: no, if you want something like that then that's what it costs you know? <laughs> yes but, um, yeah, the integration with the phone is. Of course, they haven't talked about the cost, really. You know, the price they quoted them it was the low entry in. Yes. If you want the gold one. Which I don't <laughs> particularly. But, oh, no, I, mean, my, I mean, if I was going to get one, shit. I mean, if it's a work of art, then fuck it, you know? Well, Go it's for a two
2: it. year work of art until the next one comes out. Well, I mean, that's it's the other that thing. the wristbands yeah. are yes, interchangeable sufficiently. Yeah. I think the wristbands may be more the work that, of art. that's. Well,
1: oh, no, you know. you're right. The wristbands. Are awesome. Yeah, it's, that's really a brilliant idea. Yeah. But I think the integration is very
2: interesting and certainly something that interests me. I mean, I've been playing with Noble Ape on the iPhone recently with the view that these new iPhones would be coming out. Load Honestly, I didn't know what the specs would be, although I anticipated through a kind of logical continuum what the specs might be.
1: Well, the rumors were accurate and they've been out there for a long time. So. Yes, yeah. well,
2: yes. I mean, the rumors have been wrong previously. So yeah, no, but, yeah. Your, you know, yeah,
1: no. I know. You can always No, I know. But I mean, you knew, well, we didn't know anything really, of course, you're right. <laughs> hmm. But literally
2: last night, I woke up concerned that I might be coming back under a fever again and got up and walked around for a few minutes and sat in front of my keyboard and wrote up what I thought the specs for the Noble Ape simulation on one of these iOS devices would be. Because, I mean, the thing I've done so far is written Noble Ape for the iPhone in a kind of comfortable fashion. But the thing that really interests me is distributed computing. And I actually having mm. a series of these
1: simulations ah, running oh, on all these phones yeah. all over the world, yeah. all working together. And Oops.
2: part of this problem oh, is space okay. and time within a simulated environment. And I was in, you know, 15 minutes before I went back to bed, able to write quite a coherent kind of tessellated universe that could easily be simulated over you know n where n is two to a thousand plus phones quite comfortably so now that is written and i have Mm. some experimentation to do but again you know one is constantly kind of you know one could continue to develop this stuff independently from actually putting on a device for years as i have done so far so I'm really mindful that getting something out in the near future is probably more interesting uh, initially than kind of working on the you know the finer points of the mathematics associated with this kind of broader.
1: Project. Well, you can again, you do both. Exactly. Yes, you no, continue working point. on it and you put something out in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm sort of coming to grips with too. I mean, that's that's uh, those are similar issues to things I'm facing. Yes.
2: So one of the participants in the Biota podcast who I've been meaning to look up for a few years now was an academic called Liz Swan, who I guess, I don't know, she must be in her early 40s now, And she put together uh, at least one book that I was a part of maybe four or five years ago. But she's done a lot of work associated with popularizing relatively abstract ideas in philosophy. She did um, a book called The Philosophy of the Transformers, i.e. the, you know, more than meets the eye robots that turn into things uh, maybe seven, eight years ago now. So I contacted her through the week to see if she'd be interested in um, recording a podcast just to see if she was interested in, you know, going out in an audio format, perhaps restarting it in the biota feed or doing something like that. And she is now doing work in computer forensics, which is very different than the work that she did previously, and I think she's left academia officially. But she and I will record something, a pilot at least, within the next week or so, uh, and then see just what this thing will turn into. She's interested in bringing on guests periodically... And really owning the format, so I guess my role would be as a kind of sidekick and occasional recording person for this. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to get back in contact with her because um, certainly as our kind of female listeners have grown along with our male listeners, but large part the female you know demographic seems to be has it
1: changed up. over time. Um, it Seriously? remains pretty consistently
2: around a third of the correspondence that I receive, and certainly we have a number of. Um, you know, women listeners who correspond with me periodically that I'm aware of. Um, so. That's know, so nice to hear. Yes. So I'm yeah. interested in getting feedback, particularly from them. I mean, I'm not sure what I will probably do is, uh, simulcast the recording in both probably the biota feed and maybe here to see just how this pilot thing goes and whether we can actually kind of work together going forward. She, unfortunately, is slightly. <laughs> interested in doing video podcasts, and I... From my initial dis- discussion with her, and probably through the pilot, I have very li- little interest in video podcasting, if nothing more.
1: Ah, well, if it's mostly her, you know, and just a, a shot of mostly. you listening and nodding yeah, intelligently,
2: no. you know. It's never going to be that.
1: I, I should put this out to the well, listeners. Well, no, it could be that if that's what you decide it's going to be. Well, the the thing that's afflicted me last week that stopped us
2: recording uh, Stone Age was a virus that I found very, very curious, aside from the relatively high fever and the sore throat. It also had a a rash, a skin infection that came with Mm. it, which I've never had with a virus in my adult life. I mean, I had chickenpox as a child. Yeah. But I didn't actually realize, looking on the... Well, who
1: knows what this is? I mean, yeah. It's not Ebola. Yeah, it's... Well, (laughs) let's hope not.
2: Well, anyway, no, the rash completely dissipated when the infection disappeared. I mean, the two were completely interspersed. Well, no,
1: what I'm just saying is that these kinds of things don't always have simple labels we can put on them. They may be quite... Unique. Well, if you
2: look online, you will find that viruses can create, you know, skin infections as oh, well. Yeah. can be part of their, you know, yeah. wandering, wandering oh, yeah. shtick. But uh, through this period... Whatever it was, yeah.
1: you were not happy. Well, no, actually, the interesting thing was I
2: didn't really care. It was only when I recovered and started going into the outside world that I had to actually apologize to people that my skin was still blotchy. I mean, it's it's oh. completely disappeared. Yeah. But it made me realize actually <laughs> that I was perfectly comfortable with my physical form, irrespective of these bizarre lesions and a variety yeah. of other things. But well, I, because suspect- you knew it was a temporary right. thing, too. You know, it's just passed. I it was a
1: Yeah. Yeah, either that or a
2: right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it made me think that I am less concerned about my physical form, and probably this is a good thing if I maintain audio podcasts. But to be in a video podcast, anyway. So, I've I've kind of tried to sway this one away from doing a video podcast, but we'll have to wait and see yeah. how this thing comes together.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, I like I say that seeing that video of me talking encouraged me greatly because I'm I, I was sort of dreading looking at that. Hmm. And, and actually, I liked it. But so, you've
2: seen video footage of me. I mean, you've used the term Mick Jagger, I think, to describe yeah. me on a periodic basis. Well, no, so, a
1: one time I mentioned it. That's <laughs> a one time. I and just, the other the term you used was like Neanderthal, a, a, I think. No, Neanderthal, no, no, Mick no, it was Frankenstein. Frankenstein, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it was me that mentioned the Neanderthal in the face. Yeah, so, yeah, my view is actually that... Mick um, Jagger and uh, Frankenstein. Yes. That's actually an interesting combination. Well, he danced a lot like Frankenstein. He had a certain Frankenstein dance presence to his, his moves, didn't he? We may have discovered something here. Yes. <laughs> a, a new analysis of Mick Jagger. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I can't get no
1: satisfaction.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh, man. <sighs> so, in addition on my list of notes here, I have two final topics. The first is that I'm no longer doing the paleo diet. Mm-hmm. Through the period of time particularly associated with the virus and the rash, my spiritual advisor <laughs> came ridiculous. under the came under the impression that the paleo diet was doing me no good. In fact, there was some suspicion that the rash might actually be a nut allergy brought on by the paleo diet. Uh-huh. So, with my improvements in health and dropping the paleo diet came together. I also realized the important rule, and husbands here listening in to Stone Age will understand this implicitly. If you <laughs> are doing a simple sympathy diet, you cannot nominate the diet. The diet has to be nominated for you for you to be sympathetic to, as opposed to actually nominating the diet. So
1: I don't get you know, I'm not a husband, but I still don't get what the fuck you're talking about.
2: What I'm saying is that in order to do a sympathy diet, i.e.
1: Wait, wait a minute, what is a sympathy diet? It's when you do a diet with your spouse. Uh-huh. But somebody is initiating it, and the other one is just sort of going along along with it out of sympathy. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. So, so this wasn't something you initiated. Well, with the Paleo diet, it was, which is where the paradox associated with the sympathy diet going along with it.
2: Well, yes. However, I was supposed to be the sympathetic partner, as I found through this process.
1: But it was your idea, so that's exactly yeah
2: exactly. Mm. So yes, we are now on a, a diet relating to counting of points and these kind of things, which i am doing in p- perfect sympathy here with my spiritual advisor and actually the curious thing about it is that it re- it, it this diet is pointing out that i don't eat enough which is really <laughs> very curious that basically i eat typically at, at the end of the day still before typically before 6 p.m by your standards but in the morning i have a small piece of fruit and then i'll have a salad for lunch and then i'll have most of my Allocated points in the evening.
1: Yeah, I think you need to figure out your own system. Yes. I think uh, everybody's different.
2: Well that's my feeling and I also feel that I eat in cycles like month to month cycles so there are some periods of time where I will eat quite a bit and then there are long periods of time where I don't eat quite a bit and then there are small periods of time again where yeah. I eat quite a bit and this goes in like long form cycles yeah. and sometimes I'll go for a couple of weeks without not feeling with eating small amounts of food and not feeling hungry and then I'll feel hungry and I'll eat and then I'll go for another few you know, weeks yeah. and that's what this diet is actually capturing perfectly yeah. that I'm currently in a kind of trough period where i'm not eating the points that i should be eating but i feel perfectly fine i don't yeah. feel like i'm neglecting
1: my body in any way so no. anyway the final point that i wait a minute i i'm not true with that one because because that's <laughs> something i'm dealing with too obviously hmm. You hmm. Know? and the solution that i've been using is that i simply just don't eat after six o'clock yes it's really – I eat any goddamn thing I want to the rest of the time. Yeah. But, of course, I usually eat like those photos I put on, on the page. And then sometimes I'll have some soup, you know, some really nice, fancy soup. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's it. And I eat one meal a day. And I'm slowly – I mean, very slowly, like one pound a month or something, mm-hmm. um losing – Wait. Yes. You know, and getting healthier and I can feel, I, at some point I'm going to have to change it slightly because it's so slow, the weight loss now, who knows, but but, um, and um at least that's simple for me. I mean, that was the idea is that it's simple. I just don't eat after six. I, the rest of the time I can eat anything I want to, but I usually eat as well as I can.
2: Mm. Somewhere, I guess through my recovery last weekend, I found myself watching a documentary associated with the start of the current well it's not even the current, the start of the decade old conflict in Iraq associated with strategic mm. bombing campaigns and things
1: like that. I mean, yeah. And yeah. I realised through this period of time that I had some... Why st- did we go into Iraq? What what was the justification? Ma- weapons of mass destruction, that was it,
2: wasn't well, it? Well, that was the old claim. I mean, the, the practical claim was that Iraq has been so central associated with the punishment and then supply of arms and then punishing and then supplying of arms. I often think that this is just like some kind of either bizarre spousal or sibling relationship (laughs) where Iraq is just really critical to the US psyche and just has to be, you know, it has to be either it's the beaten spouse or it's the you know younger brother who's being sexually abused or I'm not really sure what the relationship is. (laughs) But you know there's something there where the rest of the world is unimportant compared to whatever we can do to Iraq I mean through the you know Lewinsky period with Clinton (laughs) he started just bombing Iraq just out of the blue when they were threatening to impeach him his response was to bomb Iraq I mean (laughs) it it worked curious things that Iraq is just like the whipping boy of the US and he's circumstances. But yeah, I mean nominally it was associated with weapons of mass destruction, but really it was probably
1: Well, it goes back to Kuwait though. I mean, yeah. originally the the whole... I mean, that was really pretty much but the Kuwait. the thing that started it all, was Prior it? to Kuwait, you had Rumsfeld selling the chemical weapons to well, yeah, that was in yeah, the 80s. Yeah, because right. no, yeah, yeah, yeah. of Iran and stuff, and the Iran-Iraq war. But I mean, really, it was the invasion of Iraq you mean Kuwait? I mean Kuwait, that, yeah. that, um, uh, that sort of started. This whole jihad of ours against him. Well, yeah. God, and who can say now that Iraq is better off now than it was when Saddam was running it?
2: Well, John Major, <laughs> I think John Major and Tony Blair are the last of the true believers in the UK that oh. are kind of wheeled out periodically to talk about how wonderful. Uh, how well, firstly, how they're not responsible, particularly it's
1: not uh, my fault. Blair.
2: You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> there was at least a full year between when U.S. troops left and when ISIS <laughs> turned up, and I went, No, actually, ISIS predates the departure of U.S. troops by about seven years. I mean, I'll... Um, I'll al Jazeera no al um al no not Al here the fellow that they bombed the house that he was in where he was alive for uh, an hour anyway. yeah anyway one of, those, one of and those one of those terrorists he was, he was like the, the second <laughs> you know the second hair devices so yeah it's it's an old old institution the final thing I wanted to talk about however was through watching this documentary on Iraq I realized that I could participate in in military imperialism by starting to say sand down the remnants of this ghost gun thing that I purchased a while back. So I took together some parts and sanded them down until I'd given myself a blood blister and put together, you know, two, um, what I guess are called upper assemblies. For folks who are interested in actually seeing how this stuff materialises, I am not the first nerd to have done this kind of stuff. There's a guy called Eric Huang, who is the co-founder of Educator.com. He's down in LA. Aaron. he's in your part of the world, which means he will be affected by ghost gun legislation. He has created a blog called My Tactical Machining 1911 80% Build Project. And um, I think his uh, his blog is so much... To do.com that just is off the top of my head but for listeners who are interested you can actually google uh, this fellow's site and see over I think 10 um, they're not video tutorials they're just text and photographs how some you know co-founder of educator.com builds his particular ghost guns and you can get a sense of how completely un um, clandestine the whole process is.
1: Yeah, I guess it's pretty, well, it's relatively straightforward engineering. I mean, there's nothing very spectacular about it. It's hundred
2: year old engineering, getting metal parts to fit together and using springs and other things. Yeah. The
1: technology that we have now with, uh, yeah, desktop manufacturing is going to be awesome. That's, and that's just getting started.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, through the model rail set, I get frequent press releases from increasingly large companies that are putting together ever-cheapening offerings in terms of this whole 3D printing thing. I mean, now there is a company that produces something the size of a microwave oven for about $800. that can put
1: together, you know... I'm looking for something that'll do clothing. Well, you know, that'll build, you know, that you just pick a pattern somewhere, put scan your body yeah. for your, you know, and tell it here's the material, build it.
2: <laughs> yeah, one of the Kickstarters of about a year ago was something that basically made hot glue gun meshes that you could then wear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very curious because you could technically put material into it. I don't see, I mean, I see the material problem really as being a 2D, not a 3D problem. You just need to understand, you know, volume and, and so accordingly. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, yeah. I, I don't think it's that big a deal, you know, the idea to p- produce something that makes nice wearable mm. clothing, you know. Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? You know, everybody just designed their own clothing and printed it out and wore it. Yeah, some of the metal stuff is really amazing. Too. And you wouldn't even need to clean it. You just mm-hmm. throw it away when you're done and make a new one next time. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, certainly a majority of my clothing is now through the likes of Cafe Press, if nothing more, because, you know, the stuff that I print through that. And although that's pre existing you know, pre existing clothing, the ink and stuff that's applied is through unique designs, yeah. you know, I've had some part of the creation of. But yeah, I think all this stuff is just becoming increasingly cheap and increasingly accessible.
1: Well I'm starting to think about I mean, if I'm gonna have a more public life, I mean obviously I can't wear Levi's and a T shirt. I mean I could. I mean yeah. that that could be my persona. But I'm thinking probably not. I'm probably gonna have to get a professional ward war road bl- 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 ward robe.
2: Oh, you can just robe. do the
1: Bruce Damer thing and just wear Well, whatever, but I need a costume. Yeah. You know, I need some sort of uh, standard identifiable costume. Hmm. Uh if I'm gonna play that game. And uh and, and that started being interesting. I mean, you know, you know, if I was a monk, you know, you can wear robes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what does the Dalai Lama wear when he's not on duty? Mm. Levi's in a t-shirt, I would imagine. Probably.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, what else would any reasonable person wear? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I'm, I'm looking at that now is, you know, shoes, pants, shirt, jacket. Mm. You know, what, what, um, what's going to be my uniform? Yes. <laughs> You know it's going to be fun, actually, coming yeah. up with it.
2: Yeah, I'm going to purchase a suit this weekend. I haven't purchased a suit probably for at least 15 years, but would work oh, i a cool. do down in LA, actually. That I'm How going far out for. can you go on a suit? Well, I don't know. But I mean, my view is, like, most of my colleagues are just hiring tuxes, and I made the comment today in our team meeting that... You know, there was a time when a, men, a man needed to own a suit. Like, it wasn't something that was... I mean, I for periods of time, I mean, I have. I had to, an ensemble that I could wear to funerals quite successfully. <laughs> but, you know, the, the notion of having a non-funeral suit... I mean, my brother's getting married next year, so I may need something like that for
1: yeah. that. Yeah, Levi's in a t-shirt is my wardrobe, Ooh. so I, I, I'm going to have to change that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I've never been so much – I went through a period of time where I wore Levi's, but I've never really been a kind of
1: jean person. They've always been too heavy for me as a kind of – Well, cutoffs, person. I mean, yeah. too. I mean, yeah, but I mean, if it's long pants, it's Levi's. If it's short pants, it's cutoffs of some sort. Yeah. 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 In fact, well, actually, I don't even wear clothes at all most of the time. <laughs> yes. It's only when I go out that I wear clothes. Yes. <laughs> And with that image, I I have nothing more to add this evening. Heron, do you have yes. anything you want to leave, or are we are we done? Well, we must be done. I don't have anything to add to that image for our good listeners
2: very good well i'll talk to you next. actually i won't talk to you next week because i'm going to be going down to la for this stew. so it may probably be uh a couple of weeks before the next recording there'll be one recording and then i think my stepmother might be in town and then the might. so yeah the recordings are going to be pretty spotty for the next few weeks folks as um you know i do travel and have people in town and other things but yeah um, yeah okay on. so i'll talk to you when i talk to you Take okay. care. okay good night See
0: ya.